Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, how do sanctions work and can they prevent war in Ukraine? I would much rather inconvenience some banker in the city or some maitre d' at a fancy restaurant than have to go and deploy another one of Her Majesty's soldiers. What is life like six months on from the return of the Taliban? Afghanistan is hanging by a thread. Daily life has become a frozen hell. And the political snowstorm around the Winter Olympics. The Chinese government is trying to portray itself as a world leader and use these games as a propaganda exercise. The head of the UK's armed forces says Russia is carrying out military exercises on a scale never seen before. The US is sending thousands of troops to Poland, Germany and Romania. Russia claims the US is trying to draw it into war. But if Ukraine is invaded, NATO nations insist they will not be part of any war, that they will respond instead with sanctions. So what are sanctions? Sanctions is a form of the word sanction. As a noun... Action by one or more states toward another state calculated to force it to comply with legal obligations. As a verb, to impose a sanction on, penalise, especially by way of discipline. More importantly, do sanctions actually work? Could they prevent war in Ukraine? Sorry, I don't have an answer for that. Fortunately, we have experts on hand who are a little better informed than your smart speaker. Tyler Kustra is Assistant Professor of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham. His research focuses on economic sanctions, so he understands what they mean. Well, I would say that when a country wants to cut off uh, economic relations with another country, uh, group or individual, over political reasons. So we've seen, for instance, sanctions used against the Iranian government because of their pursuit of a nuclear weapon. We saw sanctions used against the South African government uh, because of apartheid in the 1980s. And we've also seen sanctions, you know, against groups when we've tried to, for instance, freeze Osama bin Laden's bank accounts or even individuals when we say a Russian oligarch will no longer have access to his money held in a British bank. And do they work? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, the first thing is, how do we define work? Oftentimes, the demands that are made on sanctions are very severe. We want Iran to completely cease nuclear weapons development. We want North Korea to completely cease nuclear weapons development. And in those cases, what we found is, you know, sanctions did bring the Iranian government to the table, and they did stop them from developing a nuclear weapon. But they haven't done that for North Korea. However, with North Korea, they have impeded its economy and caused them to, you know, be able to devote less money to developing a nuclear weapon. So even if they don't get perfect grades, they still can have an impact. And they're often a much better option than, say, sending in troops. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is here. And Michael, what kind of Western sanctions are on the table if Russia were to invade Ukraine? 
Well, the sort of sanctions that uh, the West is talking about are mainly financial. There could be more personal sanctions against oligarchs, but there's quite a lot of those in place already. More effective might be uh, barring Russian financial institutions from trading, so preventing uh, ruble convertibility to the dollar, preventing anyone trading in Russian debt, stopping the Russians actually trading their own debt uh, externally, blocking technology imports to Russia, particularly technologies concerned with their own energy industries, Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline, of course, would almost certainly not happen. And then there's the prospect of secondary sanctions, which the Americans are very keen on in the case of Iran, for instance, whereby they sanction any company that works with a company that breaks sanctions. So that actually puts a sort of bubble around an economy and makes it very difficult for international companies of any sort to trade with that country, except at the risk of losing all American trade. So there's a number of things. The big one, of course, is the SWIFT banking system. Could they be thrown out of SWIFT? which would prevent the Russians from doing any trade whatsoever outside their own country. But that would hurt us as well as the Russians if we were to go down that road. Indeed, if it came to it, banking sanctions could cripple the Russian economy. Tyler Kuster again. If the EU and the US decided to, they could make that economy scream. If they take it out of SWIFT, if the US president bans any bank that deals in US dollars from dealing with Russian banks... That would be devastating for the Russian economy. Uh, if the question is, are they willing to do that? If Russia were to invade Ukraine, why wouldn't nations be willing to cripple the Russian economy? What would hold them back? Well, I think a couple of concerns. I think the EU is very concerned about Russian natural gas because the EU gets a tremendous amount of natural gas from Russia. And if we were to, if the EU were to go in and say, well, Russia can't trade with the EU or banks can't send money to Russia, then the Russians would be, well, are we going to continue to send you our natural gas? And obviously that's a particular concern right now due to energy prices. So that would be one of the main reasons they might not do it. And the other one is unfortunately just political pressure at home that some of these organizations just have... Uh, too much political power uh, and might cause the government to think twice. In Britain's case, the other thing the UK can do is, look, a lot of these Russian oligarchs, they just love living in Belgravia. They just love living in Kensington. They love these nice neighborhoods of London. They want to go out to dine there. They want to shop at Harrods. They want to send their children to British schools. And if we were to say that anyone who is connected to the Kremlin is not allowed to vacation in London anymore. We have a comparative advantage in really hitting Putin's cronies hard. Yeah, and there is a lot of talk about the Magnitsky sanctions, which are targeting individuals, possibly President Putin himself. Are are they really anywhere close in deterrent terms to sanctions that hamstring the whole country, though? You know, we really don't know. I think a lot of the problem with the Magnitsky sanctions was they were previously mainly designed to target assets. And these Russian oligarchs aren't that stupid to say, my name is, you know, so-and-so, I'm a Russian oligarch connected to Putin. They just haven't had an impact because they're very difficult to enforce. However, Mm -hmm. if they decide to go with travel sanctions, the benefit is, is that these oligarchs really like London. That's where they love to hang out. And it's a lot harder to hide your fingerprints when going through customs at Heathrow Airport than it is to hide your assets by filling out a a fake name on a bank account. So I think travel sanctions would have an additional impact. 
Whether or not it's enough to stop an invasion of Ukraine, I just don't know. But I think we owe it to the Ukrainian people, who we made security guarantees to in return for them giving up their nuclear weapons back in 1993. We owe it to them to at least try. And I think it's a lot better strategy than, say, putting British troops in harm's way. I would much rather inconvenience some banker in the city or some maitre d' at a fancy restaurant than have to go and deploy, uh, you know, another one of Her Majesty's soldiers. If we, the West, sanction Russia to strike its economy, how much power do they have to strike back at our economies? They have a fair amount of power insofar as they control that natural gas supply and they control some of the oil supply. And it's probably the biggest concern right now because it's February. If we were talking about August, it would be a different situation. You know, the Americans know this. The Americans are working hard on this. They have, you know, brought in their partners in the Gulf states to try to redirect some natural gas supply to Europe. But it's still just a very difficult situation because we've given Vladimir Putin this natural gas weapon that can be used against us. I think the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was a very large mistake because it makes us even more reliant. And I think we have to consider going forward other sources of natural gas and other sources of energy so that Vladimir Putin can't go around and bully us. I mean, you talk about sanctions in response to an invasion instead of sending troops in, but do you think they could be enough of a deterrent to prevent Russia from invading Ukraine? You know, I don't know what would be a deterrent at this point, given apart from, you know, a full-scale NATO response, given the fact that Putin has gone so far as to send all these tanks, move all these soldiers. It's tremendously costly for him. And so if he's not going to do it, it's, as one of my friends who studies Russian security says, the biggest bluff in history. But what it will make him do is that Putin is not a stupid man. He is an opportunistic man. And if Putin thinks that he can get away with it, he will do it again and again and again. So we have to stand up to a bully and say, yeah, we might not get everything we want, Putin might wind up occupying parts of the Donbass, but I think what sanctions could do is make him reconsider how far he wants to go with attacking Ukraine, and if he would ever countenance the idea of attacking another country and dismembering it. So a strong response might not stop it, but it will make him think twice about how far he wants to go and if he'll ever do it again. Tyler Kustra. Assistant Professor of Politics and International Relations. Michael Clark, we've already got sanctions in place against Russia, introduced after the annexation of Crimea, then more over the Novichok poisonings in Salisbury. What are those sanctions exactly? Well, the majority of them are personal sanctions. There's about 180 Russian individuals, oligarchs, almost all of them, who are sanctioned, which means they can't travel. And in theory, their money is sanctioned, so they can't trade in Britain. But that doesn't stop them trading because they do it through third parties. And the general view is, I mean, as as, uh, Tyler Kustra was saying, I mean, they love their property in London and all that goes with it. And it's estimated that there's about 1.5 billions worth of Russian dirty money property held in London. And the point is that these people 
people, <clears throat> once they've got property and then they invest in shell companies that sit in the British Virgin Islands or in the Cayman Islands or whatever, their money is now clean. They've laundered it. You can't really go after that. The best thing that Britain could now do would be to stop it happening any further, to say, OK, well, we'll tighten up on those 180, so we'll stop you moving your money around. This has been said for a decade. I mean, the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee says it. The Intelligence and Security Committee says it. The government have done nothing. And every time legislation comes forward, they either sit on it or don't implement it. The National uh, Crime Agency says they do not pursue unexplained wealth orders. Why? Because they can't afford to. Because the oligarchs that they're going up against can outspend them when it comes to expensive legal fees. So we are constrained because we can't afford to go after these people. If we chose to, if we chose to take the hit, if we chose to take the pain, there's quite a lot we could do. Given what you just said, uh, Michael, and given President Putin's actions right now, you have to ask yourself, what have the current sanctions actually achieved? And, and can the threat of more sanctions really deter him at all? Well, sanctions the world over are very context specific. They depend on the country you're taking them against and the circumstances. So, for instance, sporting sanctions against South Africa years ago had a major effect on the South African government because sport was so important to South Africa. They wouldn't have worked if you'd tried to take them against India, for instance, or another country that doesn't take sport quite so seriously. And sanctions against Russia after 2008 began to have an effect because the price of oil and gas began to fall. Uh, and so when Russia was under pressure anyway, sanctions did hurt. But of course, oil and gas prices are now higher. So the Russians feel as if they can weather sanctions. So it's very context specific, which country you're going up against and what their circumstances are at any given moment. But in the long term, I think as uh, Tyler Kustra said, in the long term, sanctions really can hurt the Russian economy, but probably not in the short term. Well, NATO hasn't waited for Russian tanks to roll in for its other big deterrence measure. It's reinforcing national militaries in member states which border Russia, the exact opposite, opposite of what Vladimir Putin says he's hoping to achieve. 2,000 US troops are heading for Poland and Germany and another 1,000 are heading for Romania. The Prime Minister has offered up UK planes and warships and is considering doubling the number of British boots on the ground in Eastern Europe. The reinforcements are welcome news to former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander General Sir Richard Shiraf, who wrote the novel 2017 War with Russia to warn of the risks after the annexation of Crimea. I feel sad and grieved that much of what I wrote about very, very worryingly looks as if it's coming to pass. It's a desperately worrying situation. NATO is having a gun held to its head by President Putin. He is asking for nothing less than the dismantling of the alliance. And for my money, this is the moment when NATO really has to stand up. I'm not talking about NATO deployments of combat troops into Ukraine. In fact, that would precipitate World War III. What I am talking about is maintaining a training commitment in Ukraine providing the sort of bilateral defensive weapons support that was a good example was the, the deployment of British anti-tank missiles to, to Ukraine recently. But I think this is the moment the alliance has got to say, we are going to defend NATO and we're prepared to fight for it. It means reinforcing the Baltic states. It means reinforcing Northeast uh, Romania in case of any form of spillover. That's the concern. And any spillover, particularly into the Baltic states, which are seen as ours by the Russians, we need to send a pretty strong message that they're not yours. They are free, independent NATO members, and we're prepared to fight for them. 
What does that mean? It means credible and capability. A single battle group, a multinational battle group, sends a strong political signal. But as any soldier will know, it's, it's, it's not a fighting force. It's a speed bump. And if the Russians deployed the sort of forces they are more than capable of doing into the Baltic states, NATO has got to be prepared to defend them with capable forces. And that takes time. They will take time to move there. And so the reinforcement needs to start now. General Sir Richard Shiref, uh, Michael Clark, we've seen top politicians, including the Defence Secretary, crisscrossing Europe in a flurry of diplomacy over the last few days. Has anything changed? Uh, well, the prospect of a, an early negotiated settlement to this has probably receded. And a lot of this diplomacy is to, first of all, reassure allies that we really mean it. Look, we're sending the Prime Minister, we're sending the Defence Secretary, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, we're sending these people to your countries to have personal talks. And we're sending a message as well to Mr. Putin that we're, we are taking this seriously. We're not just making statements from our foreign ministries. We're going and we're talking. So this, this sort of heightened personal diplomacy doesn't change anything in reality, except the perception that we mean what we say. And very often, personal meetings between leaders are literally so they can look each other in the eye and say to each, say to them, I really mean this. Believe me, I mean what I say. It, it can have an effect. Let's cut to the chase. How long can this go on? When will it be clear if the crisis is going to recede or become an invasion of Ukraine? Uh, well, not this weekend. <laughs> uh, because uh, this weekend, President Putin and uh, Lavrov and most of the, um, the the staff of the Kremlin are all going to Beijing for the opening of the games. So it mm. won't be now. Um, it probably, I mean, any military action will probably wait until the games are over in any case, um, or towards the end of the period anyhow. And the danger, we are in the danger period now, but by about the middle of March, then the optimum conditions militarily will start to wear off for the Russians in terms of keeping their forces at a high level, um, having to rotate the forces. The weather will probably start to uh, soften the ground a little bit then. And the longer this goes on, the longer this crisis just, just wears away at everyone's nerves, the more President Putin is in a difficult position because it's obvious what he's doing. The idea that this is blackmail, he's trying to blackmail Europe by holding a gun to the head of Ukraine. That becomes clearer and clearer with each passing week. So his position gets worse. Um, I would say that the, the optimum uh, danger period wh where this crisis will either be resolved or it will become military is, my guess is, uh, end of February, early uh, first couple of weeks in March. Let's return to the theme of sanctions for a moment. While they aim to put pressure on governments, they almost inevitably affect ordinary, innocent citizens. And often they're imposed on countries where life was already hard. Six months after the takeover by the Taliban, Afghanistan is hanging by a thread. For Afghans, daily life has become a frozen hell. Over half of all Afghans face extreme levels of hunger. More than 80% of the population relies on contaminated drinking water. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, well, the situation has become so desperate for some Afghans, they've sold their children. No one can tell me to sell my children, but we're struggling to keep them alive. And that's why we've thought of selling them. Maybe better for them and we get food for the others. Afghanistan's financial collapse has driven others to sell one of their kidneys in a desperate attempt to survive. This local elder in Herat has been trying to persuade villagers not to take such desperate measures. 
I urge the world, please don't leave us alone. Stop this tragedy, where people are selling their children or parts of their bodies. Well, Lynn O'Donnell is a journalist for Foreign Policy magazine. She has spent much time in Afghanistan. Currently, she's in neighbouring Pakistan. Lynn, you have a very personal connection with Afghanistan. What do you think when you hear those kind of stories and pleas? Well, of course, it's a it's a terrible, terrible tragedy, but the revisionism continues, and it's very easy to forget. I think um, in the wake of the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan on August the fifteenth last year, that uh, Afghanistan was amongst the most corrupt and poverty stricken countries in the world under the republic that collapsed on August the 15th. People were, were selling their children in the republic times. Poverty was dire. It has got worse. I don't think there's any question about that. But we've also got to remember that UN agencies have been in Afghanistan for decades. The World Food Programme was predicting this time last year that there would be 11 million people uh, facing food insecurity uh, when this winter came. Uh, now they're saying that um, most of the population, 90 97% of the population is now facing dire poverty. It's not that it's suddenly become a bad situation with the Taliban's return to power. It's just become worse. And, you know, your program has been concentrating on sanctions. And I think the uh, financial sanctions that uh, were put in place on August the 15th by uh, the international community, notably the United States, have certainly exacerbated and spread the problem out of the mm. countryside, out of the rural poverty-stricken areas to the middle classes in the in the cities and that's the difference so it's very widespread then it is indeed widespread. Um, since the 15th of August, ordinary Afghan people haven't been able to access their own bank accounts, so they have no cash. Um, there is food to buy in the shops, as far as I understand, but there's nobody to buy it and no money to buy it with. So uh, people are uh, lining the streets. Um, women who aren't allowed to go to work or work in offices, uh, show their faces in public anymore, are permitted by the Taliban to sit by the side of the street in the freezing freezing winter temperatures to sell, you know, their kitchenware so that they can get some money to buy some bread. It's a really difficult and desperate situation for very many people. It's a really complex set of urgent humanitarian needs. What is the solution? Well, yesterday, the United States Treasury said it will allow and enable international banks to transfer money into Afghanistan for humanitarian purposes and aid groups will be allowed to pay teachers and health care workers at state institutions. Um, the health sector was outsourced to NGOs before the fall of, um, of the Republic anyhow. Um, the World Bank has released um, $280 million to pay their salaries. Teachers were mostly employed by the state and so their salaries couldn't be paid because that money would have to be go, have to go through the Taliban um, and they were under sanctions. But now the United States has issued guidelines saying that the sanctions and exemptions that were issued in September and December for humanitarian work um, are now uh, more clearly defined for organisations that want to put money into the economy. Mm, on those sanctions then, um, the humanitarian uh, exemptions, do, do they make a big difference or is that all a bit of a sideshow? 
I mean, you know, I think they will make a difference. Any money getting in there will make a difference. I think it's how the money gets in and to which organisations it goes. The United Nations agencies are bloated. Uh, they're top-heavy. A lot of the money goes to um, their staff and their staff conditions and, you know, accommodation flights um, to subcontractors. I think smaller grassroots NGOs that don't have overheads and are able to help, let's say, a village at a time, a thousand families at a time with direct delivery of, of food and clean water and, and um, clothing for the winter are probably a better way to go. I mean, it's up to people how, how they want to deliver their charitable assistance. But I think with the United Nations saying that it's once again earmarked eight to nine billion dollars for Afghanistan is like without even reaching six months into the term of, of the Taliban's return uh, we're seeing enough money to certainly regenerate the levels of corruption that brought the Republic government down. You say that the kind of uh, desperation that we heard of did exist before the Taliban and it's easy sitting in the comforts of a first world country to, to blame the Taliban for what's happening to millions of Afghans. But how much of this crisis is of the Taliban's direct making and, and how much of it is out of its control anyway? Well, the Taliban fought a vicious insurgency for almost 20 years. And so the the desperation that prevails in Afghanistan is due to uh, the war as much as it is to corruption. But, you know, there was very little following of the money and the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, which was set up by the uh, US Congress to follow the money, has done exactly that and has said about one third of the money that went into Afghanistan was stolen. Um, the war certainly prevented uh, development projects um, across the country, especially in the South. And none of the agencies, I worked for a very short time for the European Union, for instance, which put in 2 billion euros a year and never followed the money. Uh, mm. So I think every, everybody is to blame. Um, the situation can't that prevails in the country at the moment, as desperate as it is and as bad as it is going to become, cannot be blamed on, on just on the Taliban. There are an awful lot of complex uh, reasons for the situation that prevails at the moment. Lynn O'Donnell from Foreign Policy magazine, thank you for your time today. It's only 14 years since China hosted an Olympic Games, but it's about to host another. This time it's going to be winter sports in Beijing. But in these troubled times, these will be at least slightly troubled games. The Chinese capital is suffering a fresh outbreak of COVID. Not the ideal look for the country where the pandemic began, when it's trying to sell itself to the world. But its PR push was already dented by diplomatic boycotts of the Games by more than a dozen countries, all of them either European or English-speaking, or in the case of the UK, both. While all the countries have many concerns about China, the boycotts are in the name of human rights. Alkan Alkad is China researcher at Amnesty. We have been seeing human rights activists arbitrarily detained, similarly, particularly since 2017, the Chinese government launched a massive campaign under the guise of combating terrorism, where hundreds of thousands of people have been arbitrarily detained. With the Olympics, we are seeing a pattern that the Chinese government is trying to portray itself as a world leader and use these games as a propaganda exercise. If they want to showcase the country using the games, I think it's important that they should start by releasing all those who have been prosecuted 
for their for exercising their human rights. Professor Michael Clark, diplomatic boycotts. So that essentially means no politicians will turn up for glad handing and hospitality. Yes, and I think most of the world won't even notice. The point about the games is what happens at the games and whether they pass off smoothly and peacefully and whether there are any demonstrations or anything like that around it. I mean, the, the, the number of foreign politicians who turn up for the opening receptions or who are there at the stadium in, for the closing uh, ceremonies doesn't really matter to most of the rest of the world. The Chinese would have liked to have made more of this, but the fact that they can't is a relatively minor problem for them. But can a boycott make a difference or does it end up turning a sporting event, which is supposed to bring people from around the world together, into a political football? Oh, well, you know, sporting events are always political. I mean, the, the ancient uh, Greek Olympic Games held in, in Olympia uh, in the Peloponnese were incredibly political. They were very political. I mean, any big event that brings nations or groups or different ethnicities together always has a political element because that's really what politics is. So you can't stop that. The, the issue is whether you can keep it within mainstream politics. And many games, of course, are a very good um, uh, example of useful diplomacy. It's a, it's a forum where things can go on. I mean, sporting games like, like uh, international funerals turn out to be quite useful diplomatic events because leaders come together for a relatively short period. They, it's, it's a bit like speed dating. They say all that they've got to say to each other and then they go away again. It's very useful. It's quite a coup for China to host both seasons of the Olympics in such a relatively short time. Does this really improve their international standing and their soft power? Well, in this case, it may not. You know, the thing about Olympics, all these big games, <clears throat> is that the, the athletes, once they finish their events, they're usually hanging around for the, for the closing ceremony. And then they go out into the cities where the games are and they party. They party with the citizens of those cities, with each other, because they're all Olympians from different countries. Mm. They love the fact that they're Olympians. And it's a, it's a tremendous um, sort of atmosphere of festival and celebration of sport and good fellowship and all of those things things taking place interacting with the city whether it's it's uh, uh, London or whether it's uh, Los Angeles wherever it might be it's a wonderful thing it's not going to happen here partly because of Covid and partly because the Chinese have got everything clamped right down so I suspect that that, that certainly won't happen this may turn out to be the most joyless the most joyless Olympics that anyone can remember. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>